Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Festival Gala Night, True Stories Told Live, supported by Craig's Investment Partners. Expect the unexpected from a sparkling showcase of talented writers in our much-loved Festival Gala Storytelling event, now into its 12th iteration and still serving up surprise and delight. Eight writers each take the stage to share a seven-minute true and personal tale without prop or script, inspired by this year's evocative prompt, Across the Divide. Braving the spotlight are ex-military leadership coach and business writer Harold Hillman, the boy from Gorge River, Chris Long, GP and essayist Dr. Himali McInnes, the illusionist podcaster Helen Saltzman, Tampa survivor and strategic studies master Abbas Nazari, the queen of historical fiction Jenny Patrick, the author of breakout fiction hit Greta and Valden, Rebecca Riley, and Irish physicist and science communicator Laurie Winkley. Tehuidududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududududu
Hade mai rā e ngā mau ngā whakahi, e ngā waitere whakatere tanifa, o rungai te motu, o rungai te ao. Hade mai rā i rungai te kaupapa nāna ko whakakotahi ai tātau i roto i te ahia hiponi. A nei, ko atu anō te whetiwara, waituhi o tāmaki makaurau e au ia ngā mihi ki tō tātau kaupapa. Pikau hia mai rā ngā tini aitua ngā tini mate. Kei runga i a koutou, kia tūhono ki era, kei runga i a mātou, kia mihihia, kia tangihia, kia poropora ki tahi tātou, i runga i tā tātou kaupapa. Kā tiake ngā mate, koutou te tau, o te marama, o te wiki, o te rānei. Koutou ko karapinepine atu ki te kāpunipuni tanga o te wairua, ko te pō, te pō, te pō ki a koutou. Ko rātou o te pō, Ko tātou o a pōpō, ti hei mauriora, ti hei mauriora, ti hei mauriora, ki te whaiao, ki te ao mārama. It's indeed a pleasure and an honour to welcome you on behalf of the people of Ngāti Whātua, o Rākei, beneath the shelter of our ancestral mountains here, Maungāwhau and Maungākiekie, Besides our beautiful waters here, the Waitemata, and we welcome this kaupapa again, the Waituhi o Tāmaki Makaurau, the Auckland, Auckland Writers Festival, Kei Te Mihiake. It's on behalf of my people of Te Tau, of Te Uringutu, of Ngāoho, of our, our village of, of Orake, that I welcome you here upon our ancestral lands. Um, upon the occasion that has brought us here today. So all the people from across the nation and indeed the world, welcome once, welcome twice, welcome three times. Te nā koutou, te nā koutou, ke o rā hui hui mai anō tātou katoa. He aha te hau, he aha te hau, e wawara mai, he tiu, he rā ki nāna, i a mai te pūpū tarakihi, ki uta e tiki nā, tu e a te kotu koia, te pahu, te pau whakairo katu, ki wai te mātahai o kuwaira ngi e kōkiri, e ngā mana, e ngā ihi, e ngā tapu, huri noa tō tātou whare, te nā koutou, te nā koutou, kia ora hui hui mai anō tātou katoa. E te mana whenua, Ngāti Whātua, tēnā koutou e whakarangatera nei i te tātou kaupapa. E nā mana, e nā reo, e nā matawaka, e nā karangatanga e maha, tēnā koutou katoa. E nā monga, e nā awa, e nā moana, tēnā koutou katoa. Koa and O'Brien, tuku ingoa, no mai, haere mai, waituhi o tamaki. Welcome to the Auckland Writers' Festival Gala Night. I'm Anne O'Brien, I'm the director of the Auckland Writers' Festival. I want to extend a special welcome to our distinguished guests this evening, the US Consul General, Angela Kennedy, Australian High Commissioner, Harinda Sidhu, Auckland City Councillors, Pippa Coombe and Richard Northey, 
Tātaki Auckland Unlimited Director of Arts, Entertainment and Events, Richard Clark. To our writers, to our artists, for all that you do, kia ora. Welcome to our valued sponsors, Platinum Partner, Heartland Bank, Gold Partners, Barfoot and Thompson, the Freemasons Foundation, Ockham Residential, the University of Auckland, and Creative New Zealand. To our silver partners, Craig's Investment Partners, who support this evening's gala, welcome to the event again. Tātaki Auckland Unlimited, Foundation North, the Potter Trust, Royal Society Te Aparangi, the New Zealand Defence Force, and Te Taurewhiri i Te Reo Māori, the Māori Language Commission. Our bronze partners, our publishers, Bateman Books, Penguin Random House, and Te Heringa Waka University Press. Hawkins & Co, our beautiful designers, heart of the city, Auckland Council Regional Grants, our venue partner, Auckland Live, this is the uh, jealous venue of festivals around the world, thank you. Hotel partner, Sky City, our civic, national and international cultural and program partners, and our individual donors, the patrons of the Auckland Writers' Festival who commit their personal resources to our well-being and to the programs that we offer year on year. <clears throat> August the 12th, 2022, it's World Elephant Day. It's actually National Julienne Fries Day who knew, but apparently a hot ship has a special day in the United States. It was National Middle Child Day. I'm not sure if being five of seven fits me into the middle, but I'm gonna count it in. It was National Vinyl Record Day. And it was the day that prize-winning author Salman Rushdie was attacked at a writer's engagement in upstate New York. It was a shocking thing, a news story that stopped me in my tracks coming as it did 33 years after a fatwa was imposed on him and his publishers for writing, for the writing of a book. Something which I, along with many others, had all but forgotten. We've been inviting him year on year. He's yet to accept, but one day. And that had actually slipped into the past for us. But it was a reminder, if one was needed, that language is power. It's a call to arms for some, a defiant challenge to the status quo for others, a tool to shape story and identity, both for good and for bad, an implement of change and an implement of foment, a vessel for integrity and dishonesty and everything in between. We're not living entirely in uncharted waters. Over centuries, people have struggled and died because of the potency of words spoken and written. But we do seem to be in particularly volatile times, heightened by the modern phenomenon that is social media. In the last week alone in preparing for this event, I've become aware that we have hard-working people in Aotearoa, particularly Wahine, who are being subjected not only to vile language and harassment, but actually to death threats on a daily basis just for doing their jobs. And isn't it easy to see ourselves always on the right side of the divide? We believe in free speech, we champion the world of ideas, that's why we're here, we're respectful, we work to be informed and engaged, all of which is true. But all of us can also be quick to condemn, to label, to forget that every person is more than the rhetoric we attach to them, the motive we assign to them, and that most people are trying to be decent 
and that those who really aren't trying to be decent are shaped by a world that we all made. No world is created in a vacuum. By inheritance or design, by commission or omission, we are all part of its evolution. And all of us, not just the left or the right, the woke, the reactionary, all of us have our biases, our assumptions, and our agendas. Too often, we default to a black and white point of view that ignores the complexity of the world to the detriment of us all. So what to do and where to start? Well, the festival is at your service. Already this week, AC Grayling has challenged us to strive for individual, incremental change, small acts of resistance to better shape the future. David Truebridge has argued for the paradigm-changing role of the artist. And children's writer Kwame Alexander told an animated audience of more than 1,500 11 and 12-year-olds in this very room yesterday to write, W-R-I-T-E, the world. When asked by a student why he writes, Kwame replied, the world is not always beautiful, but I believe that by imagining it more beautiful, I can help to make it so. So I write to imagine the possible. Words are powerful, they're transformative, they plant ideas in minds. I've stood on the stage now for 11 years to get this gala event and the weekend that follows it underway. And the magic that is to come never ceases to astonish me. An alchemy of generosity, bravery, energy, and connection between writers and audience. This is a weekend to bask in the power of words, in the joy, delight, affirmation, provocation, challenge, and reflection they offer. And then take that gift across the threshold out into the world. Between one word and another, between one moment and the next, in that space lies all possibility. As a previous festival guest, Kate Atkinson once wrote, the beginning is the word, the end is silence, and in between are all the stories. So, let us get on with the stories. To introduce this evening's eight writers, please welcome to the stage, Auckland Writers' Festival board chair, Lee Melville. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ena mana, ena reo, ena iwi. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Lee Melville toko ingoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Good evening to you all. I can't see you. <laughs> and thanks to Anne. Um, and welcome everyone to this highly anticipated festival gala night. As the recently elected chair of the Auckland Writers' Festival Trust Board, it is my very great pleasure to see this festival get underway. Thank you to all of our staff, patrons, supporters, fellow Trust Board members, and everyone in the audience for being here tonight on a very special Auckland weather evening, for your patience and for being here to share the literary riches that this festival will offer up over the next few days. My fortunate task this evening is to introduce the eight truly fabulous writers from this year's programme 
who are taking up the challenge of that very special and of that most special of exchanges, the sharing of a story. Armed only with the phrase, across the divide, each comes to the stage with a seven minute true and personal tale, especially for you. I'll tell you briefly about them now, in order of appearance, before they take the stage one by one without further interruptions. At the end, they'll return to the stage en masse for a grand bow before heading out to the foyer to sign their fabulous books, all of which you are warmly invited to purchase. <laughs> Harold Hillman is a trained psychologist with a master's from Harvard who has worked for the American Armed Forces and served on the Clinton Task Force to overturn the military ban on homosexuality. Resident in New Zealand since 2008, he leads his consultancy business and is the author of books on empathy, authenticity, and leadership. Adam Foundation Prize winner, Viva Magazine Person of the Year, and 2022 Ockham New Zealand Best First Fiction Book Award winner, Rebecca K. Riley, is a Tamaki Makaurau local and the author of the best-selling whip-smart novel, Greta and Valden. She graciously steps in at late notice to take over storytelling duties from poet Tai Tibble, who is unable to join us this evening. Multiple award-winning The Illusionist podcast host and producer, Helen Zaltzman, hails from Britain and appears at the festival with her clever and irreverent show, Your Name Here, Excellent Eponyms, an adventure into the chaotic world of words which you can catch in this theatre on Saturday night at 8pm. Born into one of Aotearoa's most remote living families, Chris Long grew up in South Westland, two days hike from the nearest road. A lifelong traveller and adventurer, Chris has followed in his parents' nature-loving and authorly footsteps with his recently published riveting memoir, The Boy from Gorge River. Hamali McInnes is a Sri Lankan-born, Auckland-based GP who works with his patients in clinical and prison settings. A writer of short stories, flash fiction and poetry, her debut book is the essay collection the Unexpected Patient, about the powerful impact of encounters between patient and professional in the consulting room. Irish-born, NZ-based physicist, science writer and communicator, Laurie Winkless, has a CV that includes a stint at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Passionate about crafting fascinating and readable stories from science, she is the author of Sticky, The Secret Science of the Surfaces and Science and the City, The Mechanics Behind the Metropolis. Abbas Nazari was one of more than 400 asylum seekers rescued by Norwegian freighter, the MV Tampa. After being denied asylum in Australia, Abbas and his family eventually settled in Aotearoa. Now a Fulbright scholar, business owner and refugee advocate, 
He is the author of the best-selling memoir, After the Tampa, From Afghanistan to New Zealand. This evening's final storyteller is the delightful Jenny Patrick, one of New Zealand's most beloved historical novelists, as well as an acclaimed jeweler. Jenny's first novel, The Deniston Rose, and its sequel, Heart of Coal, are two of New Zealand's best-selling novels ever, and she has recently gifted us her tenth, Harbouring. What pleasures await. Please welcome to the stage Harold Hillman. The year is 1959. The setting is Washington, D.C. We're in Kenilworth. It's a housing project. We call them the projects. Fairly new. All black residents, relatively poor. My sister and I are in our home waiting for my father to come home. I'm four years old at that time. My sister is two. And we stood at that door every single night waiting for my father to come home. We couldn't wait. My father walks in. He is 54 at that time. He was born in 1905. He would die in 1990. And my father is exhausted. He's been at the U.S. Naval sta Station. He worked there as a laborer. He was an elevator repairman. He worked on elevators all day long. And, um, and when he walked in, uh, sometimes we could see the fatigue on his face because he went to work early and he came home right around 6 o'clock. But Renee and I, at 4 and 2, we probably didn't show a whole lot of empathy. We wanted time with Daddy. That's what we wanted. Because within 10 minutes of my father walking in that door, he would go and sit on the couch. And me and my sister, my sister and I, I would be on one lap and she would be on the other knee. And we would sit there, and he would reach for the bookshelf, and he would pull off an encyclopedia. We had a whole set of encyclopedias there. And he would pull out an encyclopedia, and he would open it up to any random page, and then he would just start reading to us. And we loved it. We absolutely, Renee and I absolutely loved hearing our father read stories to us. It was the highlight of our day because he had this way just in terms of his animated voice and how he brought things alive, whether he was talking about animals or, or statues or cities or oceans or famous people, whatever it was, he had us captivated and we would sit there and watch him as he went from line to line just reading. We were mesmerized by it. He just had this way. Um, around it. You know, he did that for uh, three years, uh, consecutive years, until I was seven or so. I mean, at, picture this. Your father comes home, um, and there you are, you're waiting. And no matter what he's got going on in his day, he knows that he's about to make the day of his two youngest kids because we loved hearing him read to us. 
And as the uh, years progressed over the next few years or so, um, at five, I went to kindergarten, and in, at six, I was in first grade. And then at seven, I was in second grade then. And I was a voracious reader. I had an appetite like you wouldn't believe, partly fueled by my father's passion for reading, but also because I just wanted to make him proud of me. I just wanted to make him proud of me that I wanted to be a reader just like him. I wanted to be able to uh, really capture the essence of a story and, and, and just be able to, to go through a book as quickly as he did as well. So I tell you what, I had an appetite like you wouldn't believe at seven for books. There was a bookmobile that would come through our neighborhood uh, every Tuesday afternoon, and I was there every Tuesday at 3.30 to take away four books, return the ones that I had borrowed that last week, and it was like that all year round. That's how much I loved books. But something happened when, um, when I was seven in the second grade. My father stopped reading to us. My father stopped reading to us, and my sister and I were really thrown. We were upset. We didn't know what to make of it. And after about two weeks of this, um, I went and had a conversation with my mother. I was really upset, and I said, Ma, um, what's going on? Daddy won't read to us anymore. And my mother said, um, sit down, let's have a conversation. And my mother explained to me that my father was born in 1905, which was 40 years after slavery had been abolished in the U.S. My father was born in the southern state of Georgia, and even though slavery ended in 1865, in some southern states, it was still illegal for black kids to go to school. It was illegal, it was against the law. And so instead of going to school, little black kids growing up, even in the next century, into 19, my father again, born in 1905. And at five years of age, rather than being in school, he was in a cotton field. And also, just, you know, just, that's, that was his existence. That was his existence. And I was like blown away, I'm seven years old, and hearing this. And so my mother described it as what was called the Jim Crow South. It didn't mean, didn't mean a whole lot to me at seven. But what she basically wanted to convey to me was, Harold, your father never went to school. Your father never went to school. Your father, father never learned how to read. And... I'm going, like, what are you talking about? I'm going, what are you saying? My father never, he, he, he never learned to read. That can't be the case. And as it turns out, um, that was the case. My father never learned to read. And the idea that he would fuel me with the passion, my mother explained to me, he reads from his imagination, you read from the pages, that's what he wanted to give you. That's what he wanted. My father's dream for me created a bridge for me to walk across the divide from racial separation and limited potential 
to a world of incredible possibility, heightened possibility. And I will forever be grateful to my father. He is the reason I'm standing here tonight. He ignited a passion in me that invigorated everything, um, everything that I've become in that respect there. I had the opportunity. Thank you. That's why I'm here. That is why I, I, I honestly wanted to tell that story. I'm a spiritual man. I believe my father's here with me tonight. I believe he's here with me. I think he would cherish the fact that I'm on a stage in front of people who love books and something that he infused in me and something that I now fully appreciate is a... Um, Across the divide means taking it across generations. And that what we want to do is ignite passion and ignite dreams and ignite hope and ignite the opportunity for the next generation to be able to walk across that bridge, across the divide, to be able to look at life um, from a, a, a much better lens, if you will. So this opportunity for me is um, um, uh, just incredible, and I just wanted to, um, to share that with you. Both my sister and I became authors. My sister is an award-winning author, as a matter of fact. And again, the testament that we pay to both of our parents, but basically to say, um, thank you, Dad. It was really powerful what you've done, what you did, and um, I will be forever grateful for that. My father helped me across the divide. Thank you. Sorry if you wanted to see Tay Tibble. Um, <laughs> I'm Rebecca. I'm not as slay and I don't like dancing. Um, but we have the same publisher. Um, I'm sorry to do a major sort of vibe shift um, because when I heard Across the Divide, I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about how I'm oppressed. Because uh, I'm, sometimes I'm not that oppressed that would be bad. I didn't want to talk about how I used to live in Germany and Germans are pretty weird compared to New Zealanders. It could be offensive. <laughs> so I thought that I would talk about how sometimes you can be really good friends with people and then you can play a game in the car and you can find out that they are the most annoying people in the world. <laughs> so, this happened to me in the year 2022. Um, <laughs> we went away for New Year's on the 4th of January because my friend's boyfriend really felt like something was gonna happen in Wellington City on New Year's Eve and we were gonna miss out if we went to Napier. 
we went to his brother's house for a barbecue and it was not fun. <laughs> so we're driving to Napier from Wellington. I had to fly to Wellington to be on this drive. Um, we stopped in Levin at Burger King. Everyone there was Filipino and my best friend Mikey was really angry because she's also Filipino and none of them had asked her to come with them. <laughs> Why are they all hanging out without me? I don't know, because you live in Levin. Well, because they never asked me to come and live in Levin with them. And so on. And then we were just liking the Burger King too much. And it was one of those things where you're in the first week of the year and you're like, oh, maybe this is me now. Maybe I'm the kind of person who just loves Burger King. You get so much food for so little money. <laughs> but then we keep driving to Napier after that, and we're being a bit insufferable in the car. There's four of us. We're trying to do this thing where we're pretending that we're being taken away to boarding school, sort of in Palmerston North, and doing these voices like, oh, Daddy, please don't leave me on the wind turbine. <laughs> I'll miss you and Mother so dearly. And then the guys in the car are like, I don't really like this game, can you stop doing the voices? <laughs> so Mikey says, okay, what's everyone's top 10 favorite construction materials? <laughs> and this is really where things kind of go downhill for the rest of the year. <laughs> I'm gonna have to cheat because I don't remember everyone's list, just off, even though they've ruined my life. So Mikey says that her top 10 materials, and then we've decided that this is what you're gonna use to construct a new society if it came down to it. Cotton, fine. Brick. Silk. Water, not a construction material. Leathers, plural. Glass. Woods. Mud. Black matter, which is not a thing. And linen. And everyone's like, well, this is stupid. Why would you pick those 10 things? It doesn't make any sense. And she says, will you come up with something better? And so I think about it for a while, and then I say, okay, I'm gonna pick concrete, glass, wood, marble, iron, cotton, leather, rubber, and then I think I'm being really clever because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have shoes in my society. <laughs> Steel, and culturally, ponamu. And everyone's like, well, that's really boring. And I'm like, well, the, you know, that's just the kind of person I am. <laughs> At least I'm gonna have shoes. And Mikey's like, well, we don't need shoes in our society because everything's made out of either water or mud so we can just slide around and it's fine. <laughs> and then her boyfriend says, well, I'm gonna pick gold, marble, silk, opium, steel, glass, wood, leather, and tanzanite. <laughs> what are you gonna do with that? Oh, well, you know, we can trade. <laughs> It's fine. And then Mitchell starts getting a little bit clever and he's like looking on his phone in the back and no one else can look at their phone because they'll throw up on this road. And he's like, well, I'm gonna have copper, hemp, carbon, and then we just kind of stop listening to him because they're like, oh, that's, this isn't really the game. It has to be from the heart, right? <laughs> and then we kind of forget about it. And then last week, it's my birthday, and we sort of bring up this 10 materials thing with some other friends. And my friend Amelia says, okay, well, I'm gonna pick sterling silver, rayon, polystyrene, cardboard, wax, asbestos, <laughs> perspex, tissue, 
and Pete. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, well, you're just, okay, you're just vibing. That's fine, whatever. That's a fun one. And then my friend Tane, who's an actual architect, is there, and he's like, well, I'm just going to pick human flesh and PVC. <laughs> and so one says, oh, you mean PVC for drain pipes? What is a society where you only have human flesh and functioning drains? <laughs> anyway, after this, I, um, I go back to the hotel that I'm staying at, because I'm staying at a hotel in Auckland because that's what I wanted for my birthday and I paid for it myself. Um, <laughs> and then I'm telling someone who is interested in how my birthday has gone via message. And he's also really upset because he sent me a birthday poem and I didn't like it which is mainly because a lot of it was about how I didn't win the Ockham this year, which I didn't need to be reminded of. And I tell him about these 10 construction materials, and he's like, well, you know, I think that you're right. Your ones are the best ones. Like, no one could beat that. And I'm like, oh, that's so nice. But you still have to pick 10. That's the game. And he says, well, I can't do it right now. I'm like, okay, fine. Just talk about other things, other less offensive poems. And then two days later, I get a message as soon as I wake up. It's all the same materials that I picked, except instead of ponamu, which is a great material that you could use both for decorative purposes and weapons, he's picked ammonia. <laughs> it's not a construction material. What are you going to do with that? He says, I'm going to use it for fertilizer. That's my across the divide. I People think other stuff in their brains. Thank you. <laughs> now, rebuilding society materials would be uh, the detritus of yesterday's cereal, the uh, hardest substance known to humanity. <laughs> That's all we're going to need. Uh, then you can lick the wall when you're hungry. Uh, I'm Helen Zaltzman. I make a podcast called The Illusionist about language and how we humans use it the ways we do. And um, I think it's one of the few fundamental tools we have to cross the divide that exists between us as discreetly packaged people and other ones, you know, like um, from one meat sack to another. And language can be a, a kiss, it can be a handshake, it can be a punch in the gut, the same tool for all those things. And I got into it because uh, I thought, well, language is so fascinating. I'll never run out of things to talk about. Endlessly varied. Uh, the, most of the show is about English. It's the only language I'm particularly competent in. And uh, I thought, well, English is interesting, isn't it? Formed of all these invasions, like the Romans, the uh, Germanic tribes, the Vikings, the French. And, and then Britain took what it learned about being invaded and went off and practiced it everywhere else. <laughs> Kept some souvenirs, tucked them into the language. And... So I, I started broadcasting those ideas, going deep into language, and immediately my inbox became a shit show. Uh, mostly the grievances were the threefold. Um, why uh, I came here for the language, why are you making it political? Uh, why am I making language political? Um, this doesn't, this uh, deviates from the rules that I have learned, and... Um, <laughs> Will you please confirm my prejudices about a thing? That's uh, my emails now. And, um, you know, I, I get people have been taught a certain way to think about it, and they think that there are rules, and speakers are going to obey the rules, and language will obey the rules. None of that pertains. And I think it can be very difficult for them 
to cope with the rage that results when you <laughs> realize that it won't. And I know that because I live in it every day, but <laughs> having decided to put language under this horrible microscope that, uh, where you can see every open pore. But um, what really started to get me was just how unequal it is, how, how language is so encoded with like power imbalances and hierarchy, and not only upholding those, and, but perpetuating them and keeping people apart, even though it is this implement for like, bringing us together. And so I can see a, a portmanteau like mumpreneur or broger, and that can put me in a rage for the rest of the day. Uh, I, I think a lot of people look at them and go, yes, that's an awful, ugly word. And uh, they're not great as portmanteaus go, and I have collected a lot. But to me, it's because there's just all this societal bullshit encoded in them, because the idea that a mum is an entrepreneur or a man is doing yoga is so unusual that they require special vocabulary. That's, <laughs> uh, that's, that's tragic to me. A lot of my work is about inclusivity and trying to um, even up some of this inequality and uh, stop everyone being trapped by language into these patriarchally <laughs> assigned roles. And I think it's actually pretty easy. I've not really found an insurmountable challenge so far, but um, I do hear a lot of bogus reasons for not doing it. Uh, for instance, like just pronouns that work for everyone, a general gender-free pronoun, uh, people are angry about singular they. It is imperfect, but it's better than a lot of the other options. I read uh, a male writer saying, the universal pronoun should be he, uh, because if you write he or she, it's inelegant. And firstly, there are other options, <laughs> like singular they. Second, which has been around for several hundred years, but secondly, inelegant being the argument, like uh, he for all is all dressed up like Don Draper and slides up to you at a hotel bar and goes, I can be whoever you want. <laughs> and then much later that evening, you're covered in stubble rash and your limbs and hair are in unprecedented positions. He for all says, did that feel gender neutral to you? <laughs> Yeah, I think elegance there is just a synonym for comfort at the expense of other people's needs. And, uh, <laughs> um, and there are so many other possibilities. Uh, I, that makes people livid as well, that you would entertain other possibilities, but loads of other languages demonstrate them. Like, Tereo Maori has gender-free pronouns. Uh, so there are lots of languages like Turkish, although if you translate Turkish into English using Google Translate, Google will add the gender in, <laughs> which is not a search I was asking for thanks. Uh, but very often I can settle these people's grievances, and by settle I just mean put a fire blanket over them and leave, by saying, well, actually, that's old. Uh, because singular they, for instance, is older than William Shakespeare's, older than Machu Picchu, Labrador dogs, predates chilies in India, tomatoes in Italy, potatoes in Ireland, tea and coffee in Britain, um, uh, cars, bras, underpants. And then they're just like, there's nowhere for my anger to go. Um, but I, I, I know, and I don't think things are better just because they're old. Like I don't think polio or me not being able to vote or monarchy are good just because they're old. <laughs> but if someone is coming at me with the ah, it's newfangled thing, which they often do when their discomfort has been provoked, I will use the it's old defense because I want to get the ah, newfangled resentment out of the way to get at the heart of what it is they really don't like. And what they often don't like is that they will, they will sacrifice everyone to a system that is not necessarily working that great rather than risk something new that may make them feel awkward. They will, 
they will not only kind of, it, it, it's weird, they'll, they'll create chasms between us where there previously weren't ones. <laughs> it's a talent of sorts. You know, if there's a linguistic crusade you would like to go on, may I recommend the word bi-monthly? Please, <laughs> choose. Is it twice a month? Is it every two months? It simply cannot be both. You know what, as well, noon used to mean not just midday, but also 3 p.m. and sometimes midnight. If you're complaining about inelegance, turning up 12 hours early is not chic. <laughs> but noon got it together. Therefore, I, I, we can make it happen for bi-monthly. <laughs> so anyway, language, you know, I looked into language because I loved it and it ruined my life and I'll never be happy again. But all you writers in the room, you've taken this, this extremely messy, flawed, fraught implement and you've managed to wrangle it into something that means something to people. Against all odds, you did it from mind to mind, flashback to flashback. You did it. Well done. That gives me some faith that language shouldn't just be abolished and we just <laughs> listen to the whistling of wind in the trees. Thank you. Good evening. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Chris and I grew up as a part of New Zealand's most isolated family down in a very remote corner of the South Island. And this evening I invite you to come on a journey through the South Island wilderness with me and my family when I was very young. First of all, where is Gorge River? So Gorge River is the place that I grew up and it's actually 42 kilometers from the nearest road, somewhere partway between Haas to the north and Milford Sound to the south, South Island's west coast. To get from my home out into the normal world, you have to walk along a coastline for that 42 kilometers, and eventually you get to that nearest road. And that's the journey that I want you to come on with me today. First of all, it starts with listening to the weather forecast for sometimes many weeks. For those of you who have been down to the west coast, you'll know that to get a solid fine spell of weather, you've got to wait quite a long time. Eventually, we'd get the fine spell of weather that we need for the walk, and we'd be packing our bags, and we'd be um, taking the last vegetables from our garden, and we'd be getting ready for the hike. Eventually we'd leave about midday one day and we'd begin the walk to the north out to town. Now, when I was very young, um, I would do that in my mum or dad's backpack. However, by the time I was aged three and a half, so I was probably about that tall, I actually had to walk the whole way myself because my sister was then in the backpack. So imagine we're walking north along the coastline. If you look up into the mountains, you've got the snowy southern Alps, and then they give way to the more of the rolling, jungle-covered um, hills. Then you've got like a line of flax bushes that protects the, the forest from the ocean. And then if you look out to the ocean, you've got the mighty southern ocean rolling in with the waves crashing in onto the rocky shoreline. And then you've got the, the coastline that we're walking along between the ocean and the mountains. For the first day, the coastline's actually kind of gravel and sand. It's not the hardest walking, it's not soft sand, it's not like your typical beach that you go and lie on. 
uh, but it's not like rocky boulders. Uh, we walk up that coastline and eventually we get to the Spoon River. Now that's our first obstacle that we have to cross. If it hasn't been raining too much the night before, Spoon River will be about that deep and we'll cross that river and then we pitch a tent and that's where we sleep for our first night. The next morning, we wake up, welcomed by a big cloud of West Coast sandflies. Uh, so needless to say, we get going pretty fast. And we walk along the coastline, um, continuing north. But this time, the, coast, the, the, um, the beach is quite steep, and it's made up of boulders, kind of about that big. And they all kind of roll away under your feet as you're walking along, so it's actually quite hard going. And you do that for a couple of hours, and then you get to a place called Sandrock Bluff. There you have to climb up through the jungle over kind of this, um, this headland and you've got Kiki and you've got Superjack um, and you've got Rimu trees and it's, it's pretty cool but it's quite rough going as well. There's a little bit of a track over, over the headland and then eventually you come out to the coast on the other side. You usually have lunch up on the top, maybe some of mum's um, home-baked bread with a couple of boiled eggs. When we get back to the coastline, uh, we're now on the roughest bit of coastline and the boulders are about this big. So you've got three, three and a half year old me, who's about that tall, and the big boulders. And we're, we're walking along. I'm having a great time. I'm actually just counting all of the flax stalks as I go along. My mum has to hold me and, and guide me through the boulders because I'm too distracted looking at what else is going on. Seagulls flying past as a, a seal um, jumps back into the ocean. And then you've got a few fjord and crested penguins that are coming up to their nests up in the flax bushes and the rata trees. We keep doing this, um, and eventually we get to a place called Barn Bay. It's this beautiful um, moon-shaped beach of, of sand, and you've got the big waves rolling in, and now you've got the afternoon sun shining through the waves, and, and the, the beautiful turquoise color of the ocean is really, really amazing. We then cross the Hope River, which is, let's say, about that deep on a good day, so it's not the biggest obstacle. Um, however, it's still pretty cold, and we, we cross there, we're pretty tired by that point, and there's a really nice house built by a crayfishman many years ago, and we stay in that for the night. Next day, we continue the hike. So this is day three now. Uh, we can continue the hike. It's just for a couple of hours inland up the Hope River. We cross the river a few times. It's pretty cold. Uh, but eventually, we get to a little hut um, tucked in, in behind the forest. Now, we've just left the coastline now. Remembering that we've just been at home for usually probably five months because we do this trip every, every uh, twice a year. And it's suddenly so silent because we've left the ocean behind us. So that night, it's like you can hear a pin drop. It's the first silent night that we've had for ages. <coughs> then we continue the hike the next day through, um, through the jungle this time along a four-wheel drive track. And eventually we get to, to a farm. There's a little farmhouse which is about 70 years old, a tiny little um, cottage. It's got a this big open fire which gives you no heat. But the mosquitoes can come down the chimney as well all night. <coughs> so you don't get much sleep. In the morning, we put on our frozen socks and then on, um, put on our, our hiking shoes and continue the walk. A couple of hours later, we get to the Cascade River and this is the largest thing dividing my family living down in the wilderness from the outside world. Cascade River on a good day. Remember, we've been walking for a few days now, and it hasn't been raining. It's still about that deep. 
So after a lot of rain, you can't cross it. It's totally impossible. Um, but on this particular day, it's about that deep. Three and a half year old me is about that tall. So I've got dad on one side, mum on the other side, and, we, and sisters in the backpack. And we walk into the river. It gets pretty deep. It's pretty cold. A lot of snow melt in that river. And we, we cross. It's about 50 meters. And finally, we come out the other side of that river. And we are now on the correct side of the river. We've left home and we're now in civilization. Our legs are like red and burning from the cold, so we don't stay there very long. We keep walking, and a couple of hours after that, we get to the end of Cascade Road, which is where we'll get a ride with, with someone, maybe the farmer will give us a ride, and then we'll continue on our journey out to the big city of Haast, Wanaka, Queenstown, <laughs> and then eventually we'll jump in a little fixed-wing aeroplane with our groceries, and then fly all the way back through the Southern Alps, back to Gorge River. And we do that twice a year. Thank you. The human egg is a really fascinating thing. It starts forming in the human female fetus when she is about 10 to 12 weeks of gestation. It is at first a primordial germ cell, and then it splits to become a primary oocyte. The female fetus grows. She listens to the throb of her mother's heartbeat. She swims and floats in her mother's laughter and blood and tears. And then the female baby is born with about a million eggs already formed in her ovaries. My mother was born in 1943, and she was born with about one million eggs in her ovaries. About three decades later, just one of those eggs fused with the sperm cell from my dad to produce me. But the interesting thing is that way back in 1942, way before I was born, a part of me was hanging around, being a primordial germ cell, a primary oocyte, inside my mother, inside my grandmother. And I find this really fascinating. It's like the past is in me. The past is still present. And the past is probably the single biggest thing that divides us from each other. I work as a family doctor, and every time somebody comes into my consult room, I'm aware that there is this huge and complex history that comes trailing in behind them. And it is a history made up of ancestors and grandmother's wombs and childhood stories and stories of life and love and loss the things that happened to us before we were born and the things that happened to us in our childhoods can set the trajectory of our lives. And it, I like to think of it as the fingerprints of our ancestors on our souls. Of course, my remembered history starts with my grandparents. My paternal grandparents died before I was born of preventable illnesses, meningitis and heart disease. My maternal grandparents, my Grandma was a, um, my Archie was 
an orphan from a poor family. I am Sri Lankan and Archie's grandma. My Sia, my grandpa, tall, strapping Sia with his big ears and his loud laugh, he caused an absolute scandal by marrying my Archie. Sia loved to work hard. He was like a Clydesdale horse. He just kept going and going and going. And he owned his own sawmill, and he um, kept working in it until the age of 85. Osh, I think, would have had a field day with him. <laughs> he died when he was 87, but by that time, he'd really set up his descendants to do well. My Archie, my grandma, was a teacher, and she loved to make stuff. I call this the art of Nana technology, making things by hand and from scratch. Um, and just like my Archie, I too am a Nana technologist. I love making stuff. And in fact, I have my Archie's hands. I literally have the same hands. The fingers curve inwards in the same way, and the skin wrinkles and coruscates over the knuckles in the same way. Uh, I will never be a hand model because these are not pretty hands, but I do not care because these hands can do the same things that my Archie could do. And they are a tangible, physical reminder of my past. But one time a teenage patient saw my hands and she said to me, Ah, oh, miss, you've got Yoda hands, miss. <laughs> but you know what? The force of the doctor's pen is pretty powerful because I charted her rectal paracetamol to be given every hour. <laughs> Two days a week, I work in, inside a New Zealand prison, and if there is a place in New Zealand that really embodies the theme of uh, tonight, which is across the divide, it would be a prison. A prison is full of tall barbed wire fences, there's heavy metal doors to push through, there's a division between the people who can go home at the end of the day and the people who have to stay. And I do feel different to prisoners, but it's not because of my skin color or my job or even the fact that I have these Yoda hands. The main difference between us is the past. And the past is this huge, colossal thing that the men and women who are incarcerated carry around with them. It is like... The, the, the stories that they try to forget are so, so painful and so hurtful, and they're so different to my own childhood stories. I was sexually abused from the age of five. My mom had schizophrenia and didn't look after us. My parents were alcoholics. My ex-partner stomped my head in and beat me until I passed out. A child's brain is this soft, malleable, beautiful thing, and it has so much potential for creativity, for generosity, for kindness, for hard work. But you take that beautiful thing and you subject it to toxic childhood stress, you will change its structure and you will change its function. You'll shrink the hippocampus so that the person is forever prone to poor memory and poor learning. You'll shrink the prefrontal cortex so that they will be prone to poor, impulsive, irrational decision-making. You'll switch the function of the amygdala so that the person is always fearful and hypervigilant and anxious. The past is so present for a lot of people. But prison can also be a place of profound and sometimes unexpected connection. 
Sometime last year, um, I met a wahine who came into my room, and uh, she had this lump in the mi middle of her chest, and I was like, oh, that doesn't look good, and I was starting to formulate diagnostic possibilities. Is this a sternal osteosarcoma, very rare? Could it be a goiter or metastatic breast cancer? And then the lump moved, which gave me a bit of a fright, and she pulled her shirt down to show me this tiny orphaned baby duckling, <laughs> which was super cute. I met this wahine again a few weeks ago, and um, she was telling me, yeah, miss, you know, when I feel down, miss, I just, I like to cuddle with my duck. And I was like, the duck? I remember your duck. Tell me about your duck. I love animals. And she was like, yeah, well, you know, he's all grown up. His name is Kofi. He likes to tuck his beak into the crook of my elbow and snuggle. And it's just so good for me. So, of course, I had to tell her about my chickens, about how my husband likes to call them the fat, feathered fluckers, and how they all have different personalities, like the anxious, hypervigilant one and the bossy, greedy one, etc. And we just talked for about five minutes about pets and animals, and we giggled and we laughed to get together. And then, almost reluctantly, I had to bring the uh, conversation back to the medical stuff. And as she left, I thought about the things from our past that can divide us, and the things from our present, like ducks, that can bring us together. Thank you. Are you more of an artsy person or a sciencey person? As a kid, I didn't really know that there was any difference. As far as I was concerned, anything that sparked my curiosity and allowed me to learn and discover new things, that was fine by me. From the age of about four, I had two favorite places at home. One was this big armchair that sat under the window in our living room. That offered what I considered to be the perfect conditions for book reading. It had soft, well-worn cushions that hugged my body. And even on a really dull day, there always seemed to be sunlight on the page. From that armchair, I visited imagined worlds and I accompanied people on their adventures. My other favorite place at home was our garage. Yeah, it was really dark, and there were cobwebs in every nook and cranny, but to me, it was just full of treasures. I would spend hours out there rummaging around just to see what I could find. The metal cabinet in the corner, that was always a good place to start. It was taller than me at the time and kind of rusted around its edges and it sat beneath a pair of wooden shelves that were so far out of reach. In some of the cabinet's drawers, there were tools, just really everyday stuff like chisels and hammers and allen keys. But I was obsessed with these tactile, shiny things. 
And long before I knew what any of those tools was called, I wanted to understand how they might be used. I'd dig through all the other drawers for various fixings and see if I could get things to match up. I just wanted to understand how it worked. In time, I was taught to use those tools. And I think the thing that the magic that they held, they shifted away from the thing itself and towards what it was tools allowed me to do. I really vividly remember the first time I used a spirit level, uh, and it was to just check the new bookshelf was just perfect. And I had a favorite angled paintbrush, I still do, um, that I would whip out every time my mom wanted to freshen up the trim. I have a really clear memory of doing very careful measurements and calculations with my dad to figure out how much flooring we'd need for my bedroom. And then when the flooring pieces arrived, doing artistic sketches to see if I could come up with some sort of design. The resulting pattern was kind of a grid. It wasn't perfect, but we all thought it was beautiful. And later, when I got a telescope and began to marvel, really, at the night sky, the fact that I knew what it was that made the stars shine added to their visual appeal. It really wasn't until I got maybe halfway through secondary school and had to start choosing and excluding subjects that I became aware of this division between the arts and the sciences. And I just hated it. Like, even when choosing university subjects, I was toggling between physics and journalism. Physics won. And studying physics, it just unveiled a hidden world to me. It, like, it expanded my own personal universe. And it gave me the tools I needed to explore and understand that universe. I learned how to ask really good questions and how to find useful answers. But I think in the first few years of actually working as a physicist, I figuratively and literally dulled myself. I wore business clothes to the lab and really ugly glasses, and I never talked about my interests in things like literature and theater and art. I think I thought that that was the best way to ensure I would be treated as a serious scientist. Now, that ridiculous misconception did fade after a while, but some other version of it arrived later when I left the lab and wrote my first book. For a few years there, I felt completely lost. I didn't really know how to define myself anymore. I didn't think that I counted as a real writer, but maybe I wasn't considered a scientist anymore either. The day that I realized that I am and can be both was when I was doing research for my second book, Sticky. So I'm in a lab and I'm interviewing an engineer about her research, and she opens up this large wooden briefcase, and inside it was a set of gauge blocks 
Now these are precisely machined blocks of steel that are used to measure lengths in industrial settings. And the top surface, the visible surface of these blocks, was really dull and grey and covered in grease, so it was really oily. But as I picked one of the blocks out of its dedicated slot, this, the light just bounced off the sides of this block because they had been polished flat like a mirror. And I suddenly realised that I'd seen these before. Those wooden shelves that were far out of reach in my childhood, they had once been home to a precious set of gauge blocks. But this was the first time I'd been allowed <laughs> to hold one of the precision cut bits of steel in my hand. And it really felt like an echo from my past that was ringing through to the present. When I called my parents to tell them that Bloomsbury wanted to publish Sticky, they were exci exci really excited and my mum was hopping around the place. <laughs> when I talked my dad through my plan for the book and the variety of topics that I wanted to cover, he, you know, I could hear him smiling in the phone. My dad is a now retired engineer and toolmaker. My mum has been involved in the theatre as a director and a producer since before I was born. Writing has become the way that I stitch together those seemingly disparate sides of myself. Telling stories that change the way people think about science and scientists is a joy. Thank you very much. Oh, wow, there's actually quite a lot of people here, you're going to tell me. <laughs> Crossing the divide. That's what they told me the topic of tonight was. So you're about to get a master class in someone who's explicitly prepared to talk about this. Um, it's like doing your homework on the day that it's due. <laughs> Crossing the divide. I have a fantastic story to share with you. Now, give us seven minutes to talk about it, so look, if I run out of time and uh, I don't manage to get through it all, there are um, copies of my book for sale outside. <laughs> I'm happy to sign all of them afterwards as well. Crossing the Divide. It's actually in the title of my book, it's called After the Tampa, From Afghanistan to New Zealand. That second part of the title is super important, From Afghanistan to New Zealand. We've crossed a divide. So over the next few minutes, I'll tell you a little story, right, of, you know, us, my little family, the Nazari clan, living and growing up in little old uh, Sangjoy, Afghanistan, high up in the mountains, right, 1,500 meters above sea level, central highlands of Afghanistan. A beautiful, idyllic, tranquil life, the weather, the climate, very similar to central Otago, right, very um, hot, dry summers, blistering cold winters. It's a peaceful life, you know, a lot of us were all subsistence farmers, you know, you'd, you'd hopefully grow enough crops, and then that way, it'd last you through the winter, sell any excess at the local markets. It's a very simple, simplistic life. But, you know, for reasons outside of our control, and in many instances outside of our comprehension, we were uprooted. We became refugees. We became refugees because the Taliban had come over and taken over the country, and overnight, 
our life was turned on its head. And so the book details my journey or my family's journey of moving both across time and space and land and sea, eventually end up ending up in a refugee camp. And finally, the story that I'll share with you tonight, Crossing the Divide. We're on the shores of Indonesia, literally at the shores. There's water coming. We're literally standing there. And in front of us, there is a boat. And this boat, if you get on board, assuming it survives, will carry us across the Indian Ocean and drop us off at Christmas Island. It is a story that many of you might be familiar with, right? Asylum seekers who arrive by boat, who physically arrive on Australian shores. That was my family in August 2001, 21 years ago, almost to this day, actually. So we're standing on the shores of this little beach island thing, and there's the boat. And if you get on, assuming it survives, it will cross the divide, and it will hopefully drop you off at Christmas Island, and then you can seek asylum. But don't get on board, and you might end up begging and homeless in the streets of Indonesia as an undocumented immigrant. And you've made it all the way this far, right? You can learn about the details of it through my book. It's actually outside. I've cut the story short. And so we get on board that boat. We get on board that boat, and we just want to get to Christmas Island so we can finally show us, show our evidence, tell our story, and say, look, this is the atrocity that we have just ran away from. Can you please give us a fair go? I recently did a book tour of Australia. There's one guy in Melbourne gets up and he says, uh, a bus, fantastic, mate, but I just got to ask, why did you guys choose Australia? Was it because, you know, we had just hosted the Sydney 2000 Olympics? <laughs> and Australia looked real good on TV, and we'd done a bloody good job of it. I said, nah, mate, you know, while we were out there in the refugee camp, uh, we didn't have time to watch the Olympics. <laughs> but... But we did see an ad on TV with a lovely young blonde girl in a bikini that said, where the bloody hell are ya? <laughs> and it convinced us we need to go to Australia. <laughs> but of course, it wasn't to be because we were caught up in this thing known as the Tampa Affair. Some of you in the audience may remember that. And there were two very different responses to that, where on the one hand, you had a guy who stood up in parliament and seeking a third term as prime minister, he stands up and he says, we will decide who comes to this country in the manner in which they come. These boat people, these illegals, these queue jumpers, they have no place in Australian society, they do not share our values. And on the other hand, Aotearoa New Zealand put its hand up and says, we'll take them on. We'll take them on and give us those in family units, give us those with mums, dads, and kids. And I was a little eight-year-old boy at the time. And life for us has been incredible because we have crossed the divide. The door was opened, we've walked through, and we've made the most of it. I'll tell you another story. I recently just returned from America. I was there on a Fulbright scholarship 
I was there in Washington, D.C. from 2019 to the end of last year. What a hell of a time to be in the United States, right? <laughs> what a hell of a time to be there. And boy, oh boy, did we witness and did we see and did we experience everything good and bad that that country has to offer. But one thing that I will always take away was in the lead up to the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, I saw the crowds growing weekend by weekend from the first weekend after the election in November right up until January, every day with thousands and tens of thousands. A storm was brewing. And there, as a casual bystander, I was so glad I had a New Zealand passport, right? If shit hit the fan, just jump on a plane, get out of there. <laughs> and one of the most insane interactions about Crossing Divide that I will always remember was, you know, it's almost like caricatures, right? This guy, some of you may call him woke, liberal, lefty, screaming in the face of a MAGA hat Trump supporter, and, the, you know, the guy's saying, you know, you're a fascist, you're ignorant, you're racist, and the other guy's throwing everything back at him. And I always thought, you know, if someone's in my face calling me all of those words, fascist and racist and rah, 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 I always think, you know, is my response going to be, wow, thank you so much, you've really enlightened me, I didn't realize, <laughs> I didn't realize that, I better, better go check, my, check myself. We all need to cross the divide every now and then. I've made that journey. Can't wait to share more about it tomorrow, 12.30. See you guys there. Hello. In the long years that Lauter, my husband, was ill, we had two carers who came every day, half a state in the morning, to hoist him out of bed, toilet him, shower him, put him back onto the bed for exercises while Lawton sang waltzes to keep them in time, back into the, then they would dress him and hoist him back into his big wheelchair, ready to face the day. Those two carers were Gillian and Irina. Gillian was built like a tank, daughter of a pig farmer out Makaraway. She had a voice that could cut steel, a union delegate. And she, surprisingly, offered to help me with my research for this book that's just come out, Harboring, and she was very useful. Brought me all sorts of bits of information about early Wellington. The other carer was Irina, quite different from uh, Gillian, much smaller, much older, a little bit frail. She was Ukrainian. Irina was so tender-hearted and also highly emotional. The smallest little setback in Lawton's life or in her own was a big international disaster for Irina. She might come running in in the morning just a little bit late, waving her cell phone, Gillian, Gillian, help me, help me quickly. It's all not working. I can't log in. They won't pay me. What can I do? Oh, Gillian, it's terrible. 
and Gillian would reach out one of her big paws, take the cell phone, go with the flow, Irina, go with the flow. Irina would kneel on the floor at the shower and wash each of Lawton's toes tenderly as if they were her own little babies and regale him with stories of her beloved Ukraine, the way snowdrops came up through the snow in wintertime, first sign of spring, the beautiful countryside, the handsome buildings, the hospital where her parents, both of them medical doctors, worked. Lawton loved those stories and she loved to tell them. But what we found difficult was to, to equate this tender Irina with her politics. Irina loved Putin. <laughs> she thought he was a good leader and a strong leader, just what we need for Ukraine and for Russia. She, Irina grew up in uh, Ukraine when, it was, when there was Soviet Russia and Ukraine and Russia were all part of the Soviet Union. In Irina's uh, view, that was beautiful time. We all went to school. Nobody was hungry. We all learned music, very important thing to Irina. And once the, uh, the Soviet Union broke up, everything went downhill in Irina's view. There was crime, terrible, terrible crime. There was corruption. We couldn't live there, Jenny. We could not live there. So they came out to New Zealand. This was kind of different from the view that we had of the breakup of the Soviet Union was. But when I tried to argue with her, I like a good political argument, so when I tried to argue with her, she would say, no, no, Jenny, no, no. What you hear is all lies, all lies. She said, we listen to Russian television, so we know exactly what is happening. I would say to her, no, no, Irina, you're being brainwashed by that. No, no, it's all lies what you hear, all lies. Gillian would roll her eyes. Lawton would just smile and say, give up, Jenny, you won't persuade her. Well, I gave up. On the, on the day that Lawton died, Gillian and Irina arrived as usual and Lawton was very weak at that time. He had motor neuron disease, which meant that the brain doesn't send the right messages or sends no messages to all your voluntary muscles. And the last muscle in Lawton's case to go was his good singer's diaphragm, the muscle that controls your breath. And that morning, he just couldn't cough up a little bit of phlegm and he was unsettled. We couldn't settle him, so the ambulance was called. Then he settled, and he looked at us, the three of us standing around the bed, and he said, I want to go now. And Gillian and Irina thought he meant he wanted to go to the toilet, so they brought <laughs> the big hoist up to the bed, ready to buckle him in. But I knew what he, I knew what he meant. He meant, don't let the ambulance people resuscitate me. But he didn't need to worry because 
one breath later than that, maybe one more, and suddenly he just wasn't there. Unmistakably, he had gone. From talking to us for one moment to the next, he wasn't there. That's a, a very precious and I think a rare memory and I'm lucky to have it. Poor Irina was in floods of tears and uh, no histrionics this time, she loved Lawton. Gillian took her out to the kitchen for a cup of tea. Well, that was two years ago before Putin invaded Ukraine and I've lost touch with Irina, but I can't help wondering whatever can she be thinking now. Surely, surely she must be mourning the loss of, or the breakup or the destruction of her, her wonderful Ukraine. Or would she be telling me now, no, Jenny, it's all lies, all lies what you hear. I believe that it's not lies what I hear. I believe that I hear true news, but I can't help just wondering, is there some kernel of truth also in what Irina believes? By the way, if any of you out there belong to uh, one of those conspiracy theory groups and are thinking to recruit Irina for your cause, <laughs> you won't find her. Um, I changed her name. Thank you. I think we all know how much I love this night. <laughs> I just love it. What a wonderful lineup of stories of people, of the faces of New Zealand people who come here, the people who stay, the people who are visiting, uh, of connection, of construction. Uh, it won't surprise any of you to know that there are books for sale <laughs> after this session, and some of these beautiful people will be there to sign them for you. I do, I do think that this, we ask a lot of people to, to do this event, a lot of people decline, but those who do step up and they bring their bravery and their heart and their work to the stage, and they represent the very riches of this festival and what's about to unfold for the next three days. And I urge you to join us. Each one of them will appear alongside many, many others to bring those stories even further to life. I'm going to call each of our writers on stage so they can do a final lineup, take a bow, and then we'll open the doors and you're going to go out to that bookshop. <laughs> or others will have you <laughs> at the door. So could you please welcome to the stage Harold Hillman. Rebecca Riley. <laughs> Helen Saltzman. Chris Long. Himali McInnes. Laurie Winkless. Abbas Nazari, and Jenny Patrick. 
Thank you. Take a bow. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.